welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, a weekly podcast where a panel of cyclists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, and science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Cyrus Monk, who is a professional cyclist and cycling coach, Dr. Jason Boyton, who is a sports scientist and cycling coach, and then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. This week, it's a meander through some performance-related topics like coaching, marginal gains, performance teams, training load, and more with Simon Jones. Don't know who that is? I'm sure if you've been a fan of cycling for any time, you know a rider or a team he's worked with. With a performance career for over 25 years, there isn't much he hasn't done. And I will jump in with a few of his roles in high performance in a moment. But one thing that was nice about talking to Simon was that when you have someone that has been around for so long, sorry if that makes you sound old, Simon, but when you're around long enough, you've seen so many things come and go. So it was nice to hear what he prioritizes in coaching and cycling performance. And it's not what you might first think when you hear that he was head of performance and innovation at Team Sky. But just so we're clear on Simon's experience, he started out as a sports science graduate from Cardiff University and became a sports scientist with British Cycling just months later. He would go on to coach Great Britain Team Pursuit Riders through several Olympic cycles before taking a job managing the Western Australian Institute of Sport and then moving to Team Sky before his last role as Oz Cycling Performance Director for the last Olympic cycle. So I do have uh, your professional timeline down here, Simon, and been around a long time, been at the high performance level for a long time. There's a lot we can pick on. It seems like there were things that really timed well for you. For example, finishing university in 95 and then walking into a sports scientist job with British Cycling not long after finishing that. And uh, Jason and I have kind of had discussions about how different that world would have been back then compared to now, um, yeah. which is something I think we will kind of touch on. Most recently, Oz Cycling Performance Director, but before that, varying roles, but it seems like you stuck around for a long time in these roles as well. So you're able to really get involved with processes and understand things. And the first thing, Jason wanted to talk about how we even made your acquaintance, which seems very random because all of a sudden I get a message saying, you know, I just met Simon Jones. I'm like, you know, we're kind of like, what? How? No, I teased you guys for a little bit longer than that. I was like, guess who I met today? <laughs> but we were out on a networking ride. I got there a little bit late, but it was okay because the legs were feeling it. And uh, just slow ride, riding with the B group. And we got into Nedlands and the order of the group was getting a little bit messed up. And then I see this guy who's kind of trying to direct people and like, let's do this. Let's switch the rotation. So we're talking with different people. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I end up riding next to you there, Simon. And I was like, hi, what's your name? You know, I'm Simon. I'm like, hi, I'm Jason. And then I think you asked me what I did. And I was like, oh, I, um, you know, I finished up my PhD and, and uh, sports science. And I'm just kind of hanging out here in Perth and coaching now. And he's like, oh, and Simon here is like, I, I believe he asked me, um, who's your supervisor? And I said, Chris Abyss. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I know him. I was like, really? And uh, and you asked me if I knew Pete Peeling. And I was like, yeah, I know him. And I was like, hold on. What do you do? And I think he said something like, yeah, I'm in high performance cycling. And I was like, really? 
um, what's your name? You know, like you look at me like I was an idiot. And like you literally told me, I was like, my name's Simon. I was like, well, yes, Simon who? Oh, Simon Jones. I was like, what are you doing in Perth? And that was that was how we met like just a few weeks ago. So that was that was a funny story to me. And they, oh, we ended up talking talking shop for about a half an hour after that. And then of course we, you know, the, the way the networking rides work, you have to eventually change rotation and start talking with other people. But I think we were probably maybe a minute. I don't know if we even got a minute into the conversation. And I was like, do you want to come on the podcast? <laughs> literally, <laughs> it literally took me about that long to ask. So yeah, we're really happy to be able to have a legend in the high performance worlds here to talk with us today. And with that, I'll probably hand it back over to Damien here. Let's start with a topic that you've probably talked at length at, been involved with a lot, and that's marginal gains. At this point, it seems like we have to talk about it in the context for me of like around the time, how it was sort of a new idea, but now how it's kind of standard practice in some ways. And it is a bit of uh, a worn out term. Yeah when just talking about it. But digging down deeper into it, you know, I've read an interview where you've said, broadly speaking, we consider innovation to be continuous improvement. And when you look at the core of it, what things are we currently doing and what can we improve on? That's kind of the philosophy behind it, as I understand. Um, But I I am interested in your take about uh, what your role with marginal gains was. And then why was it different at the time? What were other teams doing at the time when it sort of started to become a thing? The person who, who coined the phrase was Dave Brailsford. And I think Dave had done a whole bunch of sort of different things through his education. And one of them was like MBA. And I think he's always trying accounting. So I think marginal gains was like an accounting term. Basically, it was really like a metaphor. He was trying to kind of, mm-hmm. I think Dave's pretty good at kind of summarizing and coming up with sort of sound bites and things. And he's just trying to summarize like what we did. And then the marginal gains got his own identity and really what it was, like, you know, I think my role in this, you know, I was part of the team. I was the, the coach or the head coach then. And, and basically, we would just sort of systematically break down a problem, I suppose, from a simple, you know, well, what race do you want to win and well, how are you going to win it and what do you think you need to do? Like, where are you at? You know, you know, what are your gaps? What do you think you need to work on? And just break it down. So we used to build these mind maps and we would basically create a picture of performance. Then we, we tried to evidence where the games were and we tried to put sort of percentage of improvement down. And, and I think that was where it's trying to translate into an athlete. You know what, if you want if you want to go over here, then here's the number of things that you need to work on and like here's the gaps. So I think marginal gains was really about just those small improvements around a number of areas, which when you sort of love them together made a sort of bigger game. And I guess so at the time, I didn't really know. Well, Dave was obviously watching what we're doing as a team and then sort of came up with the term. And I think he came up with it um, and I didn't really know what well, we were just doing our jobs. And was that different back then? Well, probably was, because I think that that's the second question. So that was really the, sort of the background to it. But I think where I learned my coaching from and performance was from Peter Keane. So Peter Keane was Chris Borman's coach in 1992. And Peter had been around a few years before that. He was probably the first person to, along with another sports scientist in the UK, Louis Passfield, to find the power cranks uh, from uh, like SRM power meters. Pete was very, very methodical. And he had a really clear vision about what performance was and what it wasn't so i guess i really adopted that in terms of being you know we used to write phase plans we write a document we used to try to engage the athletes in like the plan whether it be visual and write a strategy Mm -hmm. so i think that was potentially a bit different and a slight story there was i know um cofferdis came across i forget who the team managers were this is one i think brad brad might have been brad wiggins was with them and we gave them a bit of a tour and they were like blown away (laughs) 
like they sat in all our meetings, in our team meetings and, you know, our sports science meetings. And we basically gave them like, come and look at what we do. And I didn't know what they did. And then he was literally like blown away because they used to go and ride their bikes. Yeah. <laughs> and we were, we were forensically stripping performance back and really trying to understand it. I think that was... For my, mm-hmm. uh, they might have a different perspective on that, but I think that's really where it came from is, you know, and you've got the psychologist, the physiologist, you know, you've got the coach, you've got you know, aerodynamics, you know, we, we had skin suit projects right back pre-2000, although I think Dave did come in after 2000, actually. So we were kind of on all the, like, all the gains back then. So, so I think that's it. And did that answer, did that answer mm-hmm. your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. I'm curious now as how yeah. you've seen it progressed and how deep it's getting into other teams because you're talking about confidence there having not much structure at the time but do you have exposure to teams now for example and you see them using a similar kind of approach i do still stay in touch with some of the people in my network and i ask them like what's different now and what's changing and there is there is a perception and obviously not everybody knows Every the team is doing, there is a perception there's more resources around coaching for one sports science, and you know everyone's got their clothing like projects and so on equipment. So, and I guess going back, I, well, I, I'll share that story. So back in the early days, when Chris Boardman was racing for GAN, they had one coach for the whole team, and then now you've got you know individual coaches, and you've got or uh, some coaches still have external coaches, but most teams have paid coaches. That is quite different, and obviously that's quite normal now. Most teams now have got nutritionists, they've got a chef, they've got a food truck, they've got uh, eight to 12 mechanics, you know, they've got equipment, they've got aerodynamic engineers. So it's really proliferated in terms of attention to detail and the level of expertise. So I think like the role, mm-hmm. this might be a question, but I think the role of the coach is quite different now. The role of the coach is like leveraging expertise, not not knowing at all mm-hmm. uh, at that level because they are going quite deep. But quite often though, that is the problem as well. I would say the big, big mistake people make, they just think, oh, we're going to do everything. Like marginal gains is like, well, we, do, well, we don't do everything. We actually do the, the things that make the biggest difference. And I used to talk about big gains, not marginal gains. There's no point improving mm-hmm. 1% of a performance area, which is only worth, you know, 0.1 of a percent. Mm-hmm. So you've got to make sure you get big gains mm-hmm. uh, nailed and get your basics done really, really well. But that's not, a, you know, that's not a nice nice sounding sound but is it you know, marginal gains sounds much more engaging it's sexy <laughs> yeah but let's go on now marginal gains and i think i don't know what the buzzword is now but you know when i went into sky to help out for a few years they know that dave was looking for you know half my job was like what's out there you know what what you know what we're missing and then helping then internally with you know practical problems you know so that was quite innovative i think i was the only person there in the world tour who was pretty much had my foot in you know like the performance side and the ds side and and in the sports science side and, and try to introduce new ideas or, or solve internal issues. I think Dave's, I think he does think outside the box. One thing, you know, kind of question I had around the whole marginal gains things just comes down to an epistemological question. As an example of that is you kind of brought it up um, with the jersey colors. So for me, as the thermoregulation guy, I would have looked at black jerseys and I was like, well, marginal gains would be to come up with something that's lighter in color in order to allow for cooling or at least reduce the thermal sensation that the athlete would go for. And that would be my example of, or how I would contribute to marginal gains. And in fact, like if you look at my cycling jerseys, I love the color black, but I know it's very hot. So some, my coaching jerseys have white on the back and just 
thinking of that marginal gains things, but then we were talking to that ride and you guys did some research on it and it wasn't enough to change the design of the sky jerseys. Is that correct? The reason I think, as I understand it, where sky went for the black mm-hmm. and with Rafa and Rafa looked at the Peloton and looked at basically what colors would stand out. And they found like, they found obviously from brand point of view that no one wore black. Mm-hmm. And there's probably a reason for that. Mm-hmm. So they went down this, and this is before my time and they've, they've had black jerseys from the, the start. And then they started using some of the cool tech, mm-hmm. which is like a, a technology that goes inside the fibers to reflect the heat. Mm-hmm. So they had technology inside the material. So, but yeah, as, as it turned out, I started with Sky. And literally, one of the first questions I got asked at the training camps, and this has been bubbling for years, mm-hmm. and I think, Geraint, the Jonesy, why do we, why do you wear black? It's, it's too hot. And I think there's a big perception about what we know, don't we? Because black, black's hot on the white, you know, mm-hmm. everybody knows that. So, cut long story short, I then went off and then I found a researcher in Loughborough, a guy called George Haveneth, who's done a lot of publications in Bermeric and clothing. Mm-hmm. We did a small study just comparing three conditions, the black, the white, and then the black without the cool mat. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's cool mats, I've forgotten, the, but without the technology. And it was blind. Mm-hmm. One with the technology black, one with the technology black, and then, and then a white jersey. Anyway, the results were there's basically no measurable difference between and the reason that was is that in the racing jersey, there's so little fabric mm-hmm. on these lightweight jerseys. Now, if you're talking like this T-shirt I'm wearing mm-hmm. here, which is black, mm-hmm. it, if you compare this, it's quite thick as cotton, mm-hmm. and it's two mil, two or three mil thick. If you compare it to a white one, the black would be hotter. Yeah. When you're talking a, a, a cycling jersey, which is, I forget how thin they are, but they're extremely thin, they've got a mesh, mm-hmm. there was actually no discernible difference between the two. So I present all that information back. That to me is a bit of the attention, but that's attention to detail and not, you know, going back half back to marginal gains. It was about to an evidence improvement. So when I when I started coaching, and I still think this now is that, you know, there's this um just voodoo with coaching and there's this kind of, you know, well, I'm the coach and you do it this way because that's how I did it. And it's yeah. um so because I would never I was never an elite bike rider, I was average to say the least. Mm. I had to prove everything that I said. So I sort of went about trying not to kind of just have opinions or because I've got them and tried to evidence them. So that was a classic case of me, rather me go off and say, oh yeah, well, the black, you know, in that Team Sky example, I went away and found someone who could evidence it. And I didn't know, I didn't have a, I didn't have a bias either way in terms of what the results were going to be. But I think that's part of marginal gains potentially. And um, this is maybe a little bit of a tangent, but it's something I'm actually curious about now that you've said that. You know, being you know, that you would have come into that, that scene, you would have been quite young. And that approach that you have is, I would say is very similar to how I approach coaching and high performance and cycling. And in terms of, yeah, I had a coach, but I never was never like super high level. And so I never had, I always had this kind of grain of salt whenever I got coaching advice from anybody else. I always was like, you're a natural born skeptic. So yeah. So th- that sounds very similar to like, to my approaches in terms of like, I'd rather build it from the foundation up as opposed to like build on a f- what might be a flawed foundation. Yeah. But in that world, 20 years ago, or more, you would have been really young and not established. Did you get a lot of pushback from other coaches with their dogma at all? Well, look, I don't really care what other people think. And, and um, maybe I do for half a second or so, but but back in those days, well, I think we're pretty lucky that there was a lot of coaches in the UK, but I mean, politely, they were probably, well, just didn't have the same opportunities, I think, as what, you know, doing sports science degrees and, you know, having someone like 
Pete as a mentor. So I think I think I was under quite a lot of flack because I remember back in those early days, I wrote this plan for the Olympic Games in 2000. And basically, we didn't we didn't race domestically a lot, and it was really different. And so there's a lot of complaints from race organisers, not coaches, saying, "Well, who's this Simon Jones? He's never coached anybody before. They're not coming to do Lincoln Grand Prix or whatever it was. You know, they're off doing a training camp." So I think there was quite a lot of support from my bosses at the time to kind of because obviously they had to support me because they employed me. Mm-hmm. So I do think there's quite a bit of flack from those types of people rather than coaches, which is more like the you know I guess the establishment. But they're only, they're only trying to protect their races and. Yeah, I guess that was what they've always known. And then also we didn't really communicate as well. We just sort of changed our plans and didn't, I didn't even think about the race organizers that were waiting for the best riders to turn up. That wasn't really on my radar, but those things are now because they're the, like really key stakeholders. So, so uh, but yeah, there would have been, and um, there wasn't much, there was a little bit of flack from some from riders, but generally speaking, they were totally on side with it for some reason. I don't really know why you'd have to ask them, but. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that we were talking about with marginal gains uh, when we were kind of talking about things to talk about on this podcast, what what do you think is approachable for the amateur and the the coach that isn't coaching at the the world tour level? Like, what do you think? How do you think marginal gains fits in that world? Well, look at its simplest level. It's it's really trying to identify where you can improve performance. Really, I think marginal gains, mm-hmm. and I think it's all relative. So, it depends how much time you've got available what goals you've had. So I do think at a high level principle, yeah, it is is just really about performance improvement, really. I think the marginal gains in the, you know, is kind of laying it all on the table and trying to understand and lifting under lifting every stone isn't isn't feasible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not feasible, it's not feasible at the elite level. Yeah. You know, the clever thing is stones up and leaving them where they are. You need to know, I think, what what things to leave and what things to go for. Yep. So I think for from what I can see for my weekend rides, I mean people actually I did say to one of our my um my group ride, he kept asking me, Well, what do I need to do to improve? And I said, Well, train more and eat less. Mm-hmm. And he didn't I think well. But ultimately at that level, mm-hmm. you know, I think I think people want a silver bullet. They want to know it's really, really sophisticated. But mm-hmm. in my level, you know, at my age and my level of training, if I train three hours a week more, I'm gonna get massive increase in performance than any nutrition or equipment you know they want to buy some new equipment yeah. but they don't want to train or, yeah. tra- or actually pay for some, uh, some structure they yeah. still end up riding around yeah. doing the same ride week in week out so quite often you know depending on who you are some really basic things can go a long way yeah actually i don't really think marginal gains is relevant for and if anything i would say it's the wrong thing to do you know for let's say your um amateur enthusiastic amateur if that's if you know, i'm saying that in a yeah in a, in a nice a nice way yeah 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 um one of the things that i've said on the podcast before is if you want to get an a cyclist to their optimal performance potential it would take all of the energy in the universe i still think i stand by that because because you it is an infinite amount of things that you can work on and so all of a sudden you're turning over rocks. Now you're turning over pieces of sand. All of that takes energy. And so there, there's definitely the principle of diminishing returns comes in at some point. But yeah, I think, I think you're right in the sense, if I'm understanding you right, in terms of that just getting, doubling down on the big things can just help um, oh, people. I, no, I, think, no, I think that was probably, I think marginal gains was, was potentially, I don't know, 
quite a long time ago now, but maybe a bit of spin to it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, because Dave did love, he still does love the sound of his own voice. <laughs> he, he listen to this. So, you know, I guess it was cool, but I didn't really, we're just cracking on doing our, doing our jobs, I, I really, and like leaving things out as well. And that's not really marginal gains. We, we do everything. No, actually we don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other part of that is just hyping up your athletes having something that they can attach themselves to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, a lot of coaching I think is, is removing the excuses. Now I didn't have the best wheels or, you know, we didn't go on training camps or I didn't get my, you know, I didn't, we don't have a psychologist, you know, all those, all those things for us. Mm-hmm. So back in those days mm-hmm. was about removing the excuses. So the, the athlete, the talent, the preparation could shine through. So I do think there was, whether I know this is still the case now, I think in you know a lot of teams potentially that they, like they are trying to do that. So you just got performance at the end of the day, and you and you and you clear away doubt, doubt and excuses in people's heads. Yeah, so. yeah. I really hear from you that marginal gains in some ways is more about just cutting things, doubling down, and focusing on the things that will make a real impact. So it's a filtering system. Yeah. Part of that obviously is is also looking outside of those basic things, especially when you are at that high level. Yeah. And something that I read that you said, when, when new products kind of come to you, a lot of the times they're solutions looking for a problem to solve. Yeah, nine times out of ten. Yeah. Yeah, people working really hard to get these into teams and things, but you're kind of like fending off all these ideas and just being a really heavy filter. Years ago we had three groups do a, a new era helmet, like independently. And one group presented, they're really quite, they're quite excited about what they found. And they developed the helmet that basically had no visor. <laughs> so, and it was quicker, but in the, in the simulation. So, and that to me is a lovely little, you know, it's like a, you know, well, that was the solution, creating a problem, you know? So, uh, and they really thought about the end user. They were so focused on designing this like really cool helmet that they forgot, you know, they actually didn't put a visor in there. It's like, well, yeah, you can use a camera or something. It's like, well, yeah, that's actually <laughs> But yeah, and look, that's, and I think that's where I think a lot of coaches go wrong nowadays. They get bombarded with, generally speaking, bad science, mm. a really, really highly driven, marketed products with like nutrition, perhaps training, smart trainers, you name it, disc breaks. I think they're all, solutions kind of looking for a problem really and they're all driven by commercial bike fittings an absolute classic there's no evidence behind, behind bike fitting that all that all came about through um, shops selling more products and then people try to make it into business and they go and the map people i hear have done bike fits and i cringe because there's no methodology there's no evidence behind it and it's purely there to make cash so you have got to really know you've got to know your stuff so you can filter yeah you know, you know, um, a lot, of, a lot of the solutions looking for a problem. Well, well, uh, I like disc brakes. I don't care what you or Froome says. So, they're good, they're good in the wet. If you do an case an hour, I probably want them, but I don't. I don't ride in the rain, and I yeah. and I don't and I don't ride case an hour. Yeah, and, and I, I can imagine there's a whole bunch of problems that would come with them in the world tour, and like having to change flats and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, everyone takes them. They're hard to use. They always make noises. They're hard to service. Heavier, mm-hmm. but they are good. And they are good, in, you know, in some in some cases. Is there any innovation you are excited about? <sighs> I think innovation, as a general thing, it it comes from it's like the bottom up. It's like when you've when you've really uncovered a problem, 
and it could be quite individual around a, like a certain athlete and you've gone through a process where you've kind of resolved the problem and and that could be a whole bunch of things it could it could be something to do with someone's the way they're thinking you know it could be it could be around their position it could be around their training so I don't think innovation necessarily has to be got be this big silver bullet and this amazing wow of technology. You know, it could be a different way, like a like, like a different way of behaving. I think those are the most satisfying when you've got a genuine pro- like problem and and you solve it. And I think that's where I I think that's where I have like the most satisfaction is really solving what could be relatively mundane and not particularly sexy problems, or helping people through like collaborating with other people much more so than some new piece of equipment, which may or may not actually make a difference. So, Which kind of fits into what I understand about your coaching philosophy. I read something that said that you always were looking to improve and you were never satisfied. So even if you were winning, you were always going that next step. That's like Jason. I kind of semi-agree with Jason. Like You, could, you can always improve. There's always something. I've, I mean, I would take like the chatter on the the team bus or after a race or something at the world championships, depending on the person as well. You'll always hear someone say, like they'll never say that was a flawless ride. They'll always say, oh, you know, I could have done that. Or, do you know, if only I'd done this and they'd won or they've a world record or they won the Tour de France or something. There's always, there's always room for improvement. And, and that often is driven by the athletes, not like, not the coach. So I think, so look, I think there is a bit of a balance between, I think one. I think that's probably why I went a bit wrong at that as a coach. I wasn't really satisfied, and I should have been because I actually did a pretty good job. Well, if you're at the top level and people are winning big things and doing world records, and you're kind of like turning around, maybe not even taking a little bit of time just to say, "Okay, job done. Yeah, well done. Yeah, what's next?" <laughs> yeah, look, I made. I mean, I'm reckon after 2004 Olympics, I, I think we won, did pretty well as a like a country. Like cycling, and I think I went back that night, and I was I was writing plans for two thousand eight. <laughs> you know, I'd literally gone off, been there, done that, and I was already on it. Yeah, and I wish I kind of told me to go to the pub, which I probably did as well. But you know, what I mean, like that's we need like good, experienced people around you because I was still quite a young young coach there, like wanting, but I needed to have a rest at that point and to and to reset. Mm. And uh, so I do think I became a bit of a victim of my own insecurities about wanting to be better and, and driving like an unrealistic improvement because you, you can't you can't sustain it you need like athletes need to have rest periods and yeah. so do coaches did you burn out on coaching yeah absolutely yeah what do you think that looks like what are the warning signs of that well i think i think things when people don't take breaks when they when you see in them that you know coming on days off or they're answering too wired so I think one thing I took into my, when I became a manager, I was really quite passionate about coaches taking their leave and their breaks. And and quite often when I came to work in here in Western Australia and I managed the part of the coaching team here, like no no coaches took their leave because mm. coaches started to you know, if I'm not here, then it's all going to fall apart. But it doesn't, yeah. you know, it doesn't. So I think making sure people take their leave mm. uh, and again, have a plan for that. And all, you, you've got to weave that into the training program. Um, so when your athletes are on a week off, get organised so you can take a week off. Yeah. You know, so you like, like line it up. So, so, so those little signs about people thinking that the world, you know, it revolves around them and they're all, they're, you know, the whole thing will fall down without them, and they're, and they're not delegating as well and actually sharing some of that. There's some of the obvious things, and that's kind of what I did. I think I didn't really take much holiday in the early years. Of my coach, I was, it was, 
this is going back, you know, in, like in the two thousand early two thousands. But but we all loved it as well. We were like on this big roll, and I think after a while, I just couldn't sustain. I couldn't sustain the level of intensity that I'd set. Yeah. Um, and I shouldn't put my hand up and said, you know, quite early actually, I'm struggling a bit here, but um, yeah, yeah, you live and learn. One of the thoughts I have around that is working with high level athletes or wanting to work with high-level athletes. You don't even have to work with high-level athletes to have that mindset. But in that world, I would my thought is, is that you would want to kind of have the same driven personalities that the athletes would because we would want to match their grit and their perseverance. You could see how maybe that could go in a bad way, potentially, but you, you would be concerned if, you, if you're, there was uh, individuals in high performance that weren't driven to improve their practice i guess no some aren't and i reckon another warning sign is when the coach wants it more than the athlete mm-hmm. right? you cannot want it more than like the athlete is able to kind of give mm-hmm. but often they're not they're not scientists they're not as driven as the coach sometimes i would say and, and i've seen i've seen i remember someone saying that to me years ago like jonesy you can't want it more than the athletes yeah. you know and um, so that could be really quite frustrating if you don't manage those frustrations and I would say that's I've you know I've now I've worked across many sports in in other countries and you know been around a bit now because I'm getting I'm getting on a little bit you know I think that's quite um, that is a bit of a telltale sign as well with the coaches more ambitious than the athletes they've got yeah yeah and the reason why I jumped on that question of like what's the signs of burnout for a coach yeah uh, is because I actually had the thought today I was like I really like what I'm doing right now. And then as soon as I was like, had that thought, I was like, well, what would be the signs if I didn't like what I was doing right now? You know, would it take me longer to get back to my athlete than normal? I mean, that could just be a sign of sometimes you just need space from an athlete for a couple of days. That's not, that's, there's nothing weird with that. I don't think, but yeah, yeah, just as someone that's been in the game for a long time, it's like, at what point have you ever had these thoughts? Like, yeah, I just need to step away for a little bit or this isn't fun for me anymore. Not that you've ever had that, but I'm just kind of curious as someone that's... I have. I've, I've definitely struggled at times. And so, look, I think you just got to get in early. And I think you have to, you know, I think the, you know, I reflected on my career. I do tend to go pretty hard at things mm-hmm. because I feel I'm most sort of creative in when I'm on it. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to stop it. It's almost like lighting the fuse and you can't stop it. And it's just like going in. So, um and you sort of work at a pace um and it can become quite addictive as well you know that's the thing so i think it's, it's, look, it's trying to i think it's you know if this podcast about coaching i think everybody needs a coach or a mentor somebody who who puts their hand on your shoulder and, and can offer you some advice i suppose that you that you know that you listen to and that might be you know that someone's concerned about your you know you, you as a person i suppose so I'm really passionate about helping coaches now as well and actually, you know, like mentoring, mentoring and coaching coaches. Yeah. This is something that I'm, I'm seeing coming up more and more as well, along with the athlete welfare, actual staff welfare, coach welfare, yeah. because by nature, as a coach, you're putting everyone else in front of you. And then you can potentially, yeah, really yeah. suffer because of that. And, it, and it, it takes people that have been there. It takes people that understand coaching to, um, to, to reach out. And tell people yeah. it's okay to take a day off here or whatever, but it it, it is relentless coaching. Um, it's three sixty five, just like the athletes, um, yeah, it but it's on a different level. Yeah, 
And, and I think unless you've done a role like this, they're not normal jobs. The passion you get from working in sport and the um, and then you on top of that, you know, particularly from Australia, you know, the, the crazy travel trips you have to do and then you have to bounce back into work. It's it's really, really tough. I think any Australian top-based program that's got to travel overseas, it's really, really hard unless a, you know, there's a pandemic, of course, and you can all train at home. But yeah, I think, look, I think coaching, high-performance you know, coaching at the elite level is is super demanding. And then I think, you know, historically there's not been, I think there's so many coaches I've met that have divorced or burnt out. Uh, and they sort of get, you know, it's almost like the culture of the whole system is, what you, you know, it's un, the unsaid thing that if you can sort of work at the pace, then, you know, like no one really cares once you step aside. That's it. You, you just sort of, you know, people then go away and recover and sort of come back in a, a different role eventually. And maybe it's the sensible ones that then find a way to manage it and sustain it over the long term so they can keep coming back for some more. Yeah. But it, 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 yeah, it is very, very demanding. Yeah. I'm interested in what you think the next five years for coaches looks like. Is there going to be a change in the way? Like you've already sort of said that a coach's job has changed from a know-it-all to a generalist and you've seen that shift sort of happen. Yeah. Is there going to be any sort of extra evolution of that in the next five years that you see? Well, at the elite level or just broadly speaking? I would say broadly speaking, elite level is fun to talk about, but it doesn't apply to everybody. So I think it's getting sophisticated, sophisticated that's more complex, more individual. Um, people want individualization, whether it be nutrition or training or equipment. We're talking cycling now. So I think that's where I can see it going. So, so I do think it's a get, potentially get more complex, which means more challenging. There's more knowledge, more data available. So everybody kind of got access to the same information. So so I think the coach is not going to be the person, and that's gone. I think you, that you've got all the information. If anything, like the, this new generation of athletes coming through, they really know their stuff. Some people are more into it more than others because some people just want to be coached. They're not interested in the details. But, but a lot of the people that I know, they're they're probably more dialed than the coaches. And I would say something like Luke Platt. He was all over his aerodynamics, and he was because he was an avid reader and a researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, he's curious. Yeah. So then. I think that's what coaches should do is, is get your athletes to learn and then you can share the load. You haven't got, got to have all the answers. Yep, I would, um, I would agree. And then you truly collaborate. You collaborate with your athletes yep. around problems. You can't collaborate on a problem if you don't know about the subject matter. Yeah, one of the things I say to my athletes when they when they first come on, I actually have it in my um, my notes for my induction notes for, for new athletes is, is explaining the philosophy of where you know they're an athlete but i want to get them to the point where they would be or could be a coach and that way when we have conversations they can talk to me in an athlete to coach manner or they can talk to me in a coach to coach manner i don't think coaches i don't think anybody can coach themselves yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't yeah you need to collaborate yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. i think you mentioned that on your podcast so i i do like disagreeing with people (laughs) No, I, I agree. Like, I mean, I I coach myself right now, but I'm not, the, you know, I at the highest level by any means. But um, when I mean, just to clarify around that, you know, the athlete just has that coaching mindset so that they can put, you know, put themselves yeah. in someone else's shoes or in the coach's shoes and kind of look at yeah. things and like, uh, you, know, you know, I'm sick today. Should I take the day off or not? Right. Like you can always call, call me up and ask, but like, um, knowing it, how to think about it in terms of the coach's point of view will also be able to potentially help answer that question or be able to facilitate the com- the conversation that would follow around that 
um, conversation. The the difference is going to be uh, you're teaching an athlete to be like understand themselves really well as mm-hmm. much as the process, and then a coach sitting on top just has experience across different types of athletes mm-hmm. in order to guide them in a certain direction. But the athletes doing the work for themselves. It's yeah. kind of how I see it. Yeah. Um, um, so I think yeah. The great thing with coaching is not one way to do it. And I want and, and look. I, although I probably I think there are ways not to do it mm. and that's sort of changing but still i think there's um because i think coaching is is truly trying to understand provide a service and support to, to the individual not to come in with a a dogma mm. but that's just my view um i mean there's certain things which- it seems like you're very athlete led you just look at them first and then you work out what's going to work for them well, well, well some people might disagree with that so certain things that do work for everybody as well like some training does work for everybody yeah but some people it works better, like works more than others, but no. But that's where I think we. I don't. Um, that was very much. That was like a British cycling thing, and I think it was probably through. You would have heard about the chimp paradox and 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 Steve Peters, but I think we'd already adopted a very athlete centered approach. With you know, like so, I'd learned from you know from Pete Keane, who you know was um, you know the like the only what the only coach I knew back then go into the depths of writing a plan for the athletes they could really understand it i thought wow that's like pretty cool as opposed to saying well you know you follow me on the coach and you do what you're told completely different it was and mm. he was an academic and he was an educator he wanted to educate so the athlete kind of like could understand and all, all around getting buy-in yeah so there's a lot of effort spent on buy-in you know which is um and so you understand so you understand and you understand the risk, you understand the benefits, mm-hmm. you understand this may work, may not work, and be really honest about it. So, yeah. so whether that's athletes like centered, I just think it was like an honest approach. It's an honest approach to coaching. It just sounds like treating somebody like they have autonomy and free will. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. And empowerment. Because coaching's not it. No coach sport cup coaching historically has not been like that. You know, the coaches had all the answers and they're the font of all knowledge and it's the and they're on top of the and there's still some people that operate like that. Um Yeah. And I imagine though some of that might have come from team sports. And speaking of the um, the podcast, um I don't know if you got to listen to the the paradigms episode that we came out with a few weeks ago or maybe a month ago now. Um but yeah, if you did get a chance to listen, I was kind of curious and like, you know, because we're we were on the outside looking in and trying to make inferences about what we thought would be good for cycling performance at the elite level and what would trickle down. But my take on it is, is that you're saying a lot of those things. We're in agreement in a lot of different areas. But if we were in disagreement, I'd love to hear it, though. So. Yeah, it's always I think in reality, when you apply these principles, I think that's when it becomes quite challenging as well. It's all about having a principle and a concept, but it's got to kind of live in the real world as well. Um, so I think, you know, any, anything, and, and that's, yeah, so I think that's really key about anything. Like implementation is where it's at, not, not strategy or concepts. It's really what works in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah where, the, where the rubber hits the road. But you, you talked about your strategy of selling ideas and things by being the, the person that just really does the work behind the idea in order to, to sell it. Um, I listened to a, a coach the other day that said that they just sell the ideas by saying, this is what I did when I was a writer. Yeah. 
um, which is one way to do it. They, they might be happy with that. Yeah. I'm not saying that's wrong. Well, it's the end result that's the important thing yeah. here. Yeah. yeah. And an individual approach from a coach is however they will get their idea across if they believe it's going to impact performance in any way. But I am interested in any times where you had pushback, where people really didn't want to change. But I think, well, just as a bit of, I just, that made me think about something, some feedback. I used to write these plans. I remember someone, someone saying to me, well, who are you writing these plans for? Like, do you think the athletes really read them? You know, so that was a bit of pushback or feedback and maybe what I was writing just wasn't digestible enough. You know, I was perhaps doing it for me and the athletes said, look at this plan, they bloody hell, Jones is organised, I'll just, I'll just do what he says. I don't know, that wasn't the intention. So I do think that, so I think over time, that's simplifying and summarising and boiling things down to principles, I think, and like leveraging the principles. Um, and, then, and then you apply the principles as opposed to being finite in your views, I suppose. But I think principles are, are quite nice, I think, because, you, you, you know, you can kind of, you can move a bit around principles. There's a, there's a, like an adaptive kind of, you know, you need to be adaptive around, around how you, how you implement your principles. But, um, so you mean sports science principles or like some performance principles that you've yeah, I've, well, thought about? Yeah. I mean, any, I suppose. I think as a coach, having having principles which you know provide your sort of bedrock for decision making, but really ultimately, then it's the application and how those. Yeah, because some people don't respond the same. They don't respond psychologically, physiologically, physically. Um, you know, the bodies the bodies don't work in a in that way. Or so you have to then you have to evolve. You know what you think. You know you have to think through the problem. Okay, can you give an example of like one of these principles that you would use and kind of like maybe an example? As well as you ask that question. Oh, I mean, <laughs> let's say if athlete centers a principle, but the athlete doesn't, they're not really interested. They just want to be told what to do. They're not, you know, they're kind of a certain kind of person that can't absorb information and, and they just say, look, guys, you know, whatever you think's best, I'm going to do, which isn't really that. I mean, you could say that's athlete led, but if you're really trying to sort of bash, if you're trying to bash it with information and then, that's not athlete-led. If you're trying to force them to learn or to understand, that could be. So I think that's where I think you've got to be. You've got the principle, but does it like does it work in reality? Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say, but one back, you know, I, I often hear people talk about well, training's all about consistency. Well, to, like to a degree, <laughs> like all these, you know. But um, if you do consistently the wrong thing, it can't be about consistency. Yeah. You know, so it's never. You know, I think people. Yeah. So I think. That, and that's why I talk about principles. Like this thing is not about one thing. It's about how you integrate and apply at certain times. It's almost like turning up a dial on like a graphic equalizer, which I know no one does now because they're not 50 years old. We don't have quite, you know, you know, like turn up and down the like the like the stimulus, you know, at a given time. In terms of principles, I. I, I think it's fine to have principles as long as you realize the caveats that could come with yeah. each one of those principles. So for example, I don't know, principle of tolerance. People could say, well, it's yeah. great to have tolerance. You're like, really? Are you going to be tolerant to a horrible person? Are you going to be tolerant to really horrible acts? No, we're not. Like, So you can't be tolerant all the time as a principle. Yeah. Um, but it's good to be tolerant in certain situations. So, I mean, that's kind of how... I would look at it, you know, like yeah. in terms yeah. of consistency. Yeah, consistency is going to be great. But like I said, well, if you consistently ride the same workout every single day, yeah. that's going to be a bad thing. So you can't, you know, so 
Yeah, it gets back to the 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 anecdote of Cyrus and the 120 CTL and how he got there by riding 120 TSS every single day for like six weeks or something like that during COVID. Because, yeah. um, you know, he's like the mad scientist like that. But yeah, they, they I don't, don't get on TSS. <laughs> so I'm sure you've been there and done that one. So, uh, What's yeah. that? But let's talk okay. about training load then. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Um, well, that was is that on your questions? Is that on your pre-plan? Um, well, the thing was is so when Paolo was on, and you know he was my my mentor, uh, my co-supervisor through my PhD, and him and I, when he came to town, he would crash in my spare bedroom, and we'd have had many conversations. And one of the things that we'd always debate about is training load, and I brought up training load uh, when he came on the podcast. I think if we could nail training load and training load modeling, if we could get it perfect, you know, this is a thought experiment. I think it would be I don't really awesome for the sport. I really don't think Because I think the training load is a load under which you can respond. And that is different for everybody. Mm-hmm. So while you're improving, you're absorbing the training load. And I've seen people go through, and this is where, you know, you've got to be, you know, like you're two weeks into a Tour de France, you see someone come down for breakfast and they're really excited about the time trial, but they've been doing two weeks of riding on the limit. And you think, it's just a whole different board. Like, okay, well, they're conditioned for that load like for a start. So it's all relative. But mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Another conventional wisdom around load and modeling and this kind of lovely kind of organized and progressed and just get the load right. It's like, like no one's Goldilocks, you know, like getting in the Goldilocks yep. or the sweet spot. Because I think the training response, like what, like what your muscle hears at the end of the day, is quite, it's quite a simple response, you know, and it gets a stimulus and it's whether you can recover and that's affected by so many factors. And I think this is where yep. I think science can lose itself, make things so complicated that if you're trying to explain something which is really, really hard to explain, and then no one's a robot, no one's going to live their lives. Yep as you would do, you just had to program minute by minute of how people thought, felt, ate, slept, you know, like to kind of yeah. manage their load because there's a whole psychological point to that. And I said, when people are super motivated to achieve a goal that they're madly passionate about, people can do some crazy things. They can they can absorb and train load that you never knew. When I used to start writing training programs, I'd write a phase and then I'd change it on the fly. And I think I think the best coaches do that I'd add efforts in, I'd take them out, I'd change the days around. And then when people sort of thought they were doing a session when they finished, I'd say, right, well, we're going to go and do another 100 kilometers or something, which may sound really quite old school, but I re- like that's been really in tune with what the athlete needs, and that's when you're really face-to-face. I left coaching by numbers a long, long time ago. Um, when I see all this TSS stuff, people are coaching by numbers, and, and you can't like you miss the optimum performance. Because I think humans are actually more like clever than computers. But there's a whole emotional component you actually you, you don't assimilate. And like the motivation, uh, which I think is really, really key. And and you can't account for that. So I think to an extent you've probably expressed Paolo's point of view on it. He got to the same point. What did he say? Uh, the wisdom of old coaches of just looking someone in the eyes. I think it's yeah. before a session. Well, I think that's the relationship. You don't look in the eye. You just get to know someone so well. 
because you like as a coach, as an elite coach, you spend so much time. You spend more time with your athletes than you do with your partner or your family. Yeah, you just get to know and really, really well their hopes, their fears, their dreams. They tell you stuff that would never tell like anybody else. You get to know them like nothing else. And I think yep. Yep. in the eyes, it's a magic. You just really, really, and they really trust and believe in what they're doing. And then when you really believe in something, you you can do things that you didn't really think was like possible. I'm not trying to make it all romantic here because it's not a romantic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's like, it's, you know, yeah. So that's where I think sometimes this kind of training load quest, I just think it's the wrong question. Yeah. And I, and I would tend to agree with you in that context. And I will use a different context to kind of explain that when, when people try to kind of use modeling in that to, to do optimal pacing. Yeah. That's, I kind of like, okay, you can do it and, and you can have those numbers, but realize they could be off. Definitely. They're probably going to be off. Yeah. And, and so is there no utility in those numbers? I'm I'm not ready to say there's no utility in those numbers. But what I will say around that pacing stuff is that the human brain is going to be better at pacing than any kind of numbers that are going to be brought up on the screen for an athlete, in my opinion. You know, so this is modeling versus human in, in an acute scenario. And you, I think you're arguing something similar to what I am saying in the yeah. acute scenario, but in a chronic scenario. Yeah. And the difference in context between where you and Paula would different from would be different from me and maybe Damien in this case is that you know as I do online coaching with so I don't I don't have the yeah. the luxury of seeing my athletes yeah. every day. Um, but yeah, I definitely. I mean, in that context of being being in the elite sport world and being in an institute and having that daily exposure with an athlete, I would agree. I think that is probably going to be able to out-excel yeah. a um, training load model. But even in that scenario, I wouldn't see the harm of using that model of just kind of getting a visual on things and then having an idea of how reality overlays that model and just as something just as something as a visual maybe well i think you're but i don't know what your thoughts on that it's a little look, a model is a bit like a principle mm-hmm. in my sense you've got a model gives you a framework it gives you a starting point yeah that's where i agree uh, so so i think so all models as you know all models was it um are wrong yeah all models are wrong, just some are useful. Yeah, yeah, which is true, though, but that people don't realize that. Mm-hmm. I think, say, I love Andy Coggan, and he's a very, and he knows the issues with what he's built. Mm-hmm. People don't understand it because the only person that really understands it, the guys who designed it and concealed the principles, mm-hmm. and people use it as gospel. Yeah. And it's not, it's a model. Yep, yep. All models yep. are wrong, some are useful. So, exactly. So models and frameworks and principles, they're all the thing that you need to adapt. Um, mm-hmm. I think as a coach, and look, maybe maybe you don't at different levels of coaching. You know, if you are coaching online and and there's a um, you know there's a finite amount of time that you got per client, then I think you've got to sort of um, use some of these tools. I think because um, yeah, yeah, time saving. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah, 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 and I think it also it becomes like anything though. The other thing, like it's like riding by feel 
on a bike, like you probably could ride without a power meter in a race isn't yeah. as they have done for many of decades before. Yeah. And then the power meter gets in front of you and you have those numbers there. And I think an, as an athlete would, they'd be able to judge how accurate those numbers and what they're really telling them over time as opposed to like, well, if it's a hot day that I really can't expect to have huge numbers. Yeah. Right. So the the person they would have that number in front of their face and they could ride without it. Yeah. But the numbers there, they've adjusted their, their model in their head because they realize it's hot. And I think it was something similar of like how um, a number of the kind of models that are out there in high performance right now, like it's just like with the athlete and having the power data in front of them. Um, you can have them the model in front of you and just be like, I know this model is gonna suck, you know, after they get sick. Yeah. You know, or there's, you know, there's, you, yeah. it's like anything. Eventually, you just kind of like, well, the model's just going to be thrown out in this scenario. And I kind of look at it like, I'd rather have a candle or a match burning in a canyon than nothing, as long as I can hopefully yeah. trust what I what I'm seeing. But at the end of the day, you're right. You know, even in this scenario with the online coach, yeah. if the athlete is writing in their logs. Or you get on the phone with them and they're like, I don't feel good. I don't feel like what this says I should feel. Then you're going to default to the athlete, right? I mean, yeah. That's, that's where power, well, people want to like power meters and training load. Really, I don't think you need to know how to use the tools. So like a power meter or is, is there to kind of check, really not to, not to just kind of use blindly. But they have got their use. Yeah, yeah. But it's... um. Yeah, I mean, the question is like, what is it using a tool for? You've got to have a good reason for, yeah, good reason for a training session, good reason for how you're going to monitor it, why you're monitoring it. And some, like I said, like some people don't want to go to those lengths. They just want to actually get on the bike and judging by Perth, which is the river loop, everyone just wants to ride around and smash. It. <laughs> <laughs> having, yeah. Maybe that's what they want to do. You know, if, you have, if they're having fun, that's great. That's that's my plan for tomorrow morning. <laughs> 530 SPR. Because yeah. I've done two days back to back and so I think we've gone full circle then. Uh back to marginal gains. I definitely want to ask him about the team stuff. What team? Um so I have some questions around the current performance world and just some interesting applied stuff that I'd like to get your thoughts on. For example, if if you were going to build a high performance team in terms of the athletes that you were going to have and the staff that you were going to have, maybe this is a whole conversation itself, but how would you go about that? Like, how would you vet your athletes? How would you vet your staff and that type of thing? Well, look, I think depending on what, what discipline. So firstly, your first question about the team, your team should reflect the event demands. Mm -hmm. So you kind of, is it endurance or sprint, quite simply? You know, what, you know, is it, mm -hmm. you know, describe the nature. So you can make that generally from any sport, really. So you have to understand the event demands. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I think then you have to assess, like, your coaching team as well and, and see what they know, what they don't know, and they're trying to complement their strengths as well. So you really want people playing to their strengths. Um, but as a principle, I would say, if I could... In an ideal world, I honestly think the coaches become, can become the limiting factor. So you want your coaches as just excellent generalists, mm. and they can refer to people. And there's, your team's 
team around the athletes really quite small um, because it can get too confusing with too many opinions and just too much information, which may or may not have a positive benefit. So I think that the team around athletes should be relatively small. Um, mm. But then you want to have a, a bunch of people that you, when you've got a problem, you can case conference and it's something, you know, and it could be a health issue, it could be a psych issue, it could be equipment issue, and you can draw upon boffins, which not in your team, you're in like a virtual team. So that's all about having a good network. Yeah, yeah. So that to me, I think, and, and that's worse than like, say, going back to Teams guy, Tim Kerrison ran like that. He's a pretty exceptional individual in terms of his knowledge base. Um, sort of referred, referred to experts, you know, as and when he needed them, really, but they were kind of kept at some distance. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah. I just had uh, one additional question in, the, in terms of athletes. Obviously, you would be looking for physiological ability, power output, that type of thing. Yeah. Do you have a personality type or personality traits that you would look for in your athletes? But the psych that I recruited at our cycling, she was very much against us trying to, because she felt it wasn't evidence enough to really predictive enough to say this personality type. So you can, you can, you know, it takes all sorts, you know, and it's like how mm -hmm. it really is about how to manage yourself, not picking types. Mm -hmm. The psych skills is about, yeah, sort of self-awareness and, and learning how to, you know, whether you know, if you're really anxious, which actually might be a good thing, how do you get in the, the sweet spot for stress as opposed to, so it's more like teaching skills as, as part of the psychology mm -hmm. anyway. I don't think there's a type of person. You've got to be ambitious. I used to talk about hunger, you know, like mm -hmm. hunger. Yeah, yeah. And then you go, well, what, yeah. what are the characteristics of a hungry person? Well, I think, and not always, but I think they're quite curious and they're self, they don't need to be told to turn up on time. And, 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 and if they've got things to do, like what they've got to do things at home and, you know, they'd like to do them. And if anything, you have yep. to hold them back a bit rather than, mm -hmm. you know, like follow up. Um, but that's, a, yeah. again, that's as a principle <laughs> or a yeah, yeah. realization, I should say. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think um, absolutely. I think cycling now, I mean, just look at the tour. It's won by the best physical specimen out there at the end of the day. I mean, a three-week bike race, you should be a great team. You need a lot of factors. But if you can push a certain watts per kilo, then forget it. You're not going to do it on willpower. Uh, so cycling mm -hmm. is a very, very physical uh, apart from yeah. our BMX, which has got some physicality, there's a whole skill that, that that's a new one for cycling, artistic cycling, which is amazing to watch, by the way. But as a general thumb, you need people who can hit, who've got the physical characteristics as an absolute requirement. Uh, you can make up for it in other ways, but I think that's that's the number one thing you have to look for. Yeah, for cycling, for better or for worse, it, in a lot of ways, it's just a fancy math equation. Um, it is. Well, some people like, um, I don't really appear like I'm sort of name dropping, or maybe I won't, but there's some athletes who I think have got an extraordinary resilience to training, repetition, maybe stress management as well. So is that, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. great. it's a mix between physiological and psychological, but they seem to be very robust if they crash, they get up again or, and seem to be able to sort of cope with, and I think maybe elite. And this is a very, this is a bit of just a, a very high level kind of opinion, I suppose, in terms of, I think a lot of the, a lot of the pro athletes are, I think, are relatively relaxed individuals. And maybe that's a filtering process, which kind of sort of self-selection. You don't see that many people who are really highly strung and anxious individuals um, in, in like the pro peloton. I think they, maybe that sort of filtered out. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely. So in terms of, we might have touched on this a little bit when we were talking about marginal gains. In terms of 
world tour teams that are there right now, in your opinion, like who's doing it right? Who's doing a, a really good job of it? I mean, maybe, maybe you have some, um, some favoritism towards Enios, but uh, any, Enios can, is, is, is up there, but anyone else or top three? Whatever. I think Enios got the biggest budget and they, they pay the most their riders. And like, you've got to get your talent first. It's like talent mm-hmm. plus coaching plus support minus distractions is a little like equation. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have the talent, forget it. So I think Enios has got the biggest budget, heaps of talent. Like Jumbo, clearly, I've heard good things about how they've how they approach and how organised they are, and how disciplined they are, and very individual. And also, you can tell with some of the the things that you can see. There's some things you can see on TV. And, you know, obviously, you can't. I can't tell how they train, but in mm-hmm. in in and around, I think you know. The, I guess the commentary that you hear from people that I think they they run a really good outfit. And I think a lot of teams are. You know, I think maybe. And again, I would generalize here that maybe there's a different philosophy in some of the French teams. You know, they're very comfortable and happy with their philosophy about how they do things and they try not to be too time scientific and it's much more around the the lifestyle, and that's in a positive sense in terms of and the emotion and the you know the passion around the way that they race, which is great to watch, but much better watching a French rider explode up a hill than someone sat on their power meter and doing a they would have <coughs> exactly how long they can sustain mm-hmm. that power for because it makes them for better mm-hmm. uh, but that's how mm-hmm. that's how sky won all those tours is basically working it out by numbers and got really criticized yeah. by you know washing the top you know like a dull bike race um, yeah 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 so i think those sort of things i think you can see the teams that kind of how they express themselves all the individuals but you can't escape the fact that cycling it is a very physics and physiological sport you need to know your physics you need to know your physiology Think. Yes. Um, yeah. Agreed. Hey, Damien here. We'll get back to Simon in just a moment, but first I want to take a short break to ask a favor. We, Jason, Cyrus, and I want to help you make the most of your cycling performance in 2022. And to do this, we would love for you to fill out our annual listener survey. You can find it in the show notes and it will only take a few minutes to get through, but it will make it much easier to get right to the heart of your performance problems and make sure 2022 is a great cycling year for you. So please check it out. In fact, you could even pause the show right now and get it done. I will just wait here. Still waiting. Still waiting. And when you get to the end, there's a small gift waiting for you. Thank you. And now back to the show. There's a lot of talk right now about how potentially the World Tour Peloton is getting much harder to ride in and the numbers have spiked up. And there was a recent article that came out um, from, I think, Beyond the Peloton. Yeah, I read that. Their Substack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, what were your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I just think there's one they've got. What, by for my recollection, that paper, and obviously they looked at they they tried to estimate the power output through yeah. model. <laughs> so they're mm-hmm. estimating and 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 really, um, you know, there's like one standout really, you know, at the moment. So. And also it's yeah. a bit about, you know, the impact of COVID had, you know, in terms of people had all this time to train in 2020. 
Yeah. And that's where I think people like people just train that, you know, because there's a big mantra, you know, in, in, in pro cycling about the number of days racing, you know, you need, and look, mm-hmm. you do need kilometers, you do need the volume, but for sure. But mm-hmm. How can you have like six months off and come back and then race at a phenomenal level? They're all fresh. I've been traveling around all year. So there's a, there's a freshness, there was a, a response to training, they had longer training phases. So it's like a huge experiment that everyone went through. Went through. What was your um, summary of that? Do you felt that there's a whole standard was up or there was some individuals that were obviously at a very high level? Uh, so I'm afraid in my scenario that when I have a hammer, everything is a nail here. Um, part of my wishful thinking is, is that maybe it's getting harder because there's just uh, more teams implementing better science. But I, at the end of the day, think it's multifactorial. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the COVID rest or whatever happened during that season, um, you know, allowing people to train, really focus on training. Yeah. I think that you just can't take that out. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see if, if the effect diminishes over time as, as we get back to n- what we consider normal racing. Yeah. Um, I mean, and they were also talking about how there was the more aggressive tactics yeah that could have something to do with it too yeah maybe we've always had athletes that could race this hard but we're just pushing them harder yeah but i don't know that one's i don't know how i feel about that it's just a hypothesis well, there, i think there was a view of that i think people feel that well there was one theory going around that the uncertainty of racing so this is one like after covid and when's not lo- when's the next lockdown coming and can I get to their spot bike race? So there was this view or like perception that I better make this race count. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was probably in that early sort of when the lockdowns ceased and there was like racing on. I mean, that was the view. But again, is it like the theories and it's a possibility. And I agree, there's a number of reasons. And look, I think there is a view as well that, you know, a lot of teams, well, let's take aerodynamics, I would say. Let's take a simple event like the team pursuit. I mean, what three forty-two now is the is the world record by the Italians? You know, that's um, eighteen seconds quicker than two thousand. You know, it's six seconds quicker than than Rio. So in five years, six second improvements. If you draw the, there's normally fairly linear drop in times, and it's obviously getting mm-hmm. getting less. That's a huge drop. And yeah, um, I know from some of the data, you know, there's there is a small physical like improvement, but we're talking small, mm-hmm. and there's significant drop in drag because it was riding around with the heads down yeah. causing crashes bits of bikes breaking yeah and those sorts of things um but uh yeah so you think so so a lot of that knowledge is in the hands of many teams now so that's just one little i think snapshot of where you know you know people are going to some pretty crazy links links now to reduce reduce drag you know tape yeah tape on legs you know when yeah. when you're trying to pretend you've got a sore leg and your whole team turns up with tape down your shins um you know and uh, you know the bar positions the head positions and, and and you know the skin suit development so all that knowledge is in the hands so maybe so i think i would subscribe answering your question that i think a lot of knowledge which was once the aerodynamics like gb cycling really got onto aerodynamics even though it's not new i mean with you know wind resistance been around for quite a long time um, and um, and be well known about, it, but not been exploited. So they, you know, they got on that you know quite early, and no one really caught up for you know 
quite a long time, you know, through 2008, 2012, and even a bit in 2016, they were still like doing things to their clothing, which makes a huge difference uh, that other nations weren't really able to implement. Um, and then they've all kind of, a lot of people have caught up now, and, and that information is in the hands of many more people. Maybe that's the same in, in training, in, in physiology. Teams are recruiting nutritionists, physiologists, strength people if they need them, and there's more knowledge. And you're right, I'm people. Yeah, and in a racing sense, I think things like aerodynamics, there are knock-on effects where if a whole team has a budget to roll out aero testing for everybody, then if you're in a tour, even a domestic can yeah. save energy yeah. and be better on the next day to help someone get yeah. a better performance. So all these small things yeah. that are adding up. Um, but I don't know, after COVID, we're definitely seeing that there were riders that were very good then and they didn't do anything yeah. last season which must say something about their prep versus the realities of what a racing season normally looks like and how you have to prepare in the race, across races. I don't think you can forget that. I mean, I, I am quite a, con- apparently I'm a controversial character, but I tend to just say things that people don't generally say, but you have to not forget the history of cycling and where it's been. Mm-hmm. And if they're about strategy, if you want to look at good strategy, look at the history. So I do think you have to look, you, you, you do have to have a bit of sceptical slightly eyebrow raising at some of the performances because that's just unfortunately part of the history of yeah. the sport yeah one of the things that the article pointed out was that there's almost no doping control out, out of the race outside the races right now yeah there's no no that's right yeah when there's no speeding cameras do people speed on the open roads not me no not me I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's about safety at that point yeah. I think what what you're going to have is maybe some type of 80-20 in that scenario, right? Like I think there's going to be a lot of athletes that are going to want to race clean, but then there's probably the ones that are in there that are like given the opportunity they're not. And so that ruins it for everybody, I think. Yeah. So that was the other thing that was kind of in there and what that was brought up in that article. That's why we have police and rules and law is that because we didn't have that people would run amok so sport has has doping and corruption that that's we know that and that's why there's anti-doping rules and regulations you know there wasn't and it's the same as business business has laws and rules and regulations and make and highly regulated in some areas you know for good reason because because people be greedy mm-hmm. um so yeah but yeah look not to say so i think that you're right i think to the sweeping statement is there's a number of factors which could collide together i suppose yeah yeah one thing one of my wishful thinking hypotheses is around training is that you know because we have so little data for training at the top level so for example you know some of my research with around interval training i did some regressions looking at people who had the highest vo2 well i did a regression around vo2 max levels for the people who participated in the training and then also the amount of gains that they made after the intervention and the percent uh, increases for the time trial changes and one of the things i saw was that you know the people who are more fit or the people who had faster time trials to start with had less gains from the training at least that's the way the regression was looking 
in one thing is like, well, once you get to that high, high level of training, you know, as much as we have intervals are supposed to be great things. Well, maybe at the top level intervals aren't are a waste of time. And there's a meta-analysis around intervals uh, with runners and highly trained runners. And it seems that could potentially be that, but everyone's going to be different. And maybe some athletes at that type top level would need interval training. Yeah. And so I, I think what it'll be really interesting when we start looking at like proteomics and stuff like that, I know it just kind of sounds like a buzzword, but digging down a little bit more into the physiological limiters for people that are at that top level and then understanding what training interventions are going to kind of improve yeah. those physiological limiters for them yeah and genetic modeling yeah physiological modeling yeah that's yeah yeah i mean that, that yeah it, it, to be honest that I'm, I'm getting old i'm getting old a bit now i'm getting on a bit that just sounds awful but that's where it's, that's probably is where it's going to go and i'll be an old fogey saying back in my day we never did that and but that's human progress isn't it i think the there's going to be all sorts of things which emerge in the future which yeah, we probably don't realize they're going to have an impact, but they can't stop science. Yeah. Yeah. It's like kind of one of the things I've been kind of pondering over is this um, two day and his coaching relationship with his coach. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've listened to, listened to some podcasts with him and I've listened, watched some presentations with him and he's been coaching for a while and, you know, just kind of trying to listen and reverse engineer what he, what he's doing and i haven't dug into the, any of the data that is out there but it makes me wonder I'm like what does he know that i don't know and is it did he just get lucky or has he just read the right number of papers and put them together in the right way in his mind and combined with his experience you never know um without having a deeper look into his, mm. his training and having all that physiology in front of me and then someone pointing out all the papers and the research is kind of supporting it. I know who knows it could, it could be one of those things like you could have trained him almost anyway, as long as he's just got a massive amount of volume. Yeah. Yeah. And they could take the volume. The same with some of the, the riders that I've experienced with almost like you could throw intense purposes or throw in the kitchen sink and they yeah. bounce back yeah. because they're phenomenal physiological specimens. Uh, with an, yeah. an, an enormous amount of motivation and drive, and, and not to kind of belittle, sure there was a you know a role, but you do yeah. have to question that. And one of the, well, one of the things I don't know if this is sharing too much information for you, Damien. Um, when we were talking about one of your athletes that's up there, and like how well he bounced backs from things, and you were kind of talking about the modeling involved with that, and at that level. For those guys, I would imagine the percent of type one fiber type is off the chart. It's it's got to be an outlier at that level, I would imagine. And one of the characteristics of um, type one muscle fiber type is 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 its ability to recover. And so the three of us uh, will have no experience of that level of muscle fiber. Um, no personal experience. We'll have no personal experience around how well someone with that tuple having that tuple. Well, how do I say this? We have no experience personally of how that muscle fiber type would help us recover. 
right? So it might just be a normal thing for someone that's had that their whole life. Um, they're like, I know I can bounce back this, but you know, you think back, I'm like, there's no way I could ever bounce back like this, you know, like a ride like that. But they're out. I mean, necessarily at that level, you're an outlier. That's what it. I mean, that's the definition of outliers. But yeah, you know. I've coached riders, and I remember one. I won't mention the name, but I might have said because I was training as well, and I said, "Oh, I've got really sore legs today," <laughs> and they said, "I've never had sore legs." I was like, "What?" Yeah. Legs. I was like, you're a freak. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, <laughs> some, some. yeah my, my thing that always that amazed me this year was third week of a grand tour, getting HRV values. The body is just not recognizing it. Yeah. People on their best days aim for that stuff uh, when they're not training. That's because heart rate availability is one of those problems looking for. Yeah. That's why. I would agree with you there, Simon. Correct. But that was my that was my match in the yep. in the canyon because yep. you can't rely on anything else at all. Yep. No. Yeah. When it I comes would, to modeling. I would agree with you there too. <laughs> I mean, yeah. um I, I think there's valid points on either side of that because yeah, the HRV is like, well, you have to be skeptical about it because yeah. as yeah, because it's kind of a skeptical <laughs> skeptical measurement in a sense. But at the same time it's like what else are you going to base it on other than just like, I feel good coach. Cool. We'll go with what you say. <laughs> and, and while it, yeah. Our performance test people on a more regular basis. I think you only really know where someone's at if you push them to the max. So back in the day, we used to performance test people, the riders on a very regular basis. Some didn't like it, but some really liked it. And, and then if, if someone's a bit iffy with their form, mm-hmm. we'd go and do a max test and he'd know. Like, you know the magnitude of the, otherwise you just like, well, what's going on? And you go, yeah. well, let's just go and max test you and just see, and let's see where you're at. Yeah. So you could, you could, you could understand. And I didn't explain everything, of course. It, it, it kind of gave you yeah. the magnitude of the issue. And then we sort of worked back from there. So I was always trying to evaluate. I know, I know heart rate variability, but you're so far away from, performance with those sorts of measures i've tried that i did a start part of my phd with my heart rate variability in 1995 i realized it was well yeah. back then i didn't think it was worth yeah looking and, into so I and, a, and a technical just a technical question on that um i have seen some i can't remember the protocols for the life of me but i have seen some kind of tests around overreaching non-functional overreaching and stuff like that exercise tests but the technical side of that is yeah. how much do you think you would be able to get from a sub max test? Because obviously if they're overtrained or in a bad state that way, maybe you don't want to do a maximal test. Do you think you'd find any value in doing sub max tests? And- yeah, I think, well, you know, like the RPE and the, the lactate, the heart rate, all disassociated mm-hmm. sub max intensities. It's a simple test. A speed skating coach, the Dutch speed skaters, the best in the world. They're like incredible. And for years, the, the, they have a simple PC 150 test for, for that's basically you ride 100, 150 watts, at a, or I think it might be, no, sorry, 150 mm-hmm. beats at a set, and you just look at the power. Really old school test, about 30 years old, you know, and they've been using that for years. They've got so much data that they've now got a lot of data to, to analyze on, on thousands of athletes. And that's a really sensitive measure, and they do that weekly. British rowing, they do um, a lactate test on a weekly basis, uh, and it's a it's a sub-maximal test. It's a fi- fixed rating, and they've done that for like 15 years, and they've got all this data. 
it's the same like Norwegian Norwegian Institute they have all their athletes uploading heart rate but that and in Norway is like heart rate three zones and sealer stuff like that mm-hmm. but they've got a lot of data on a lot of people so that can start to be quite powerful I think it's when people use you know like you know whether it be heart rate failure variability or any of the small science they've got like six subjects and they start reporting the mean on it, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, hold on a minute, you know, look at the variability. So I think when you've got big data on some simple tests, and those are like three examples there, with I think Norwegians use a very simple, and they, and and all that's underpinned with sort of quite basic physiology, um, and they haven't changed. They haven't changed over years, like dead simple, um, and they get criticised for not changing um, yeah. because there's all these other newfangled kind of, you know, technology. Don't want to change because they got they got fifteen years worth of data yeah. to like, to lean on. That that test used by the the Dutch sounds a lot like the Lambert and Lambert's test. I'm hoping I'm saying that in the right. I don't know if it's Lambert's and Lambert or Lambert and Lambert's. Yeah, it's like a, a fixed heart rate. It's like mm-hmm. a it's about as old school as you could get. But I think they're quite powerful. Those things once you do them, if you couple it with with RPE, and obviously there's variability around that. I do think those are types of tools which I think in, you know, like coaching enthusiastic amateurs and non-pros, and I think even with the pros, I think, I think mm-hmm. you know, it's actually quite yeah quite useful. Um, they generate conversations, those as well. I think that's the thing. When you when you ask them how they feel and they rate it and you look at that, I think it just generates generates conversations. Yeah, yeah. That's well, actually really one important. of the things next on my agenda is to start looking at submax tests because everything right now seems about critical power like we just had a long conversation with about critical power with um jason bartram we had him on and we had a conversation about how to go uh from lab to practice with critical power stuff um but like with the whole training peaks universe as i like to call it um everything seems to be focus around maximal tests and that's fine. Like you need those, but like, it seems like there is almost zero attention at least in the amateur world around submaximal testing and submax. I had, and it's handy. It seems handy to me because I was able to incorporate some of the submax testing within my research. Basically you can just include it in your warm up any day. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's 10 minutes. Go out and you do a fixed, fixed power. I see that when I was coaching up the first 10, 15 minutes, we're doing go, we do like a 10, 15 minute warm up and measure the power and a heart rate and they check mm-hmm. in and then do three, three, six second sprints. And I reckon some of the, some, mm-hmm. some of the peak sprints were quite interesting. When, when you're really in peak training, I, I noticed that the, um, and it's only anecdotal, but you know, the peak power would start to, um, but in some people and not others, but that gave you that individual, you know, you could want some, you know, something's obviously going, at some things um, like impacting recovery, or there's some yeah. more like a neural like limiter here. So as a sort of measuring and monitoring, got to measure and monitor the right things, yeah. which give you the biggest insights, I suppose. Um, yeah, because there's a lot of things you could potentially measure. We talk a lot about cost benefits. Yeah, and right now I'm kind of laying out time ranges for power tests. You know, do the classic profile power profile from Training Peaks. You would be uh, like a a five second, a one minute, a five minute, and a 20 minute, and then an hour to determine your power profile in that universe. Okay, well, can you determine critical power from those numbers? But it's missing a 30 second effort, and 30 second efforts are nice because of Wingate's. And so you quickly find that yeah. all of a sudden you have 
a lot of times that can tell you something. So, I mean, one of the things I'm looking at is trying to dis- distill those down as effectively as possible. But that's in the maximal world. The submax world is is nice because, like I said, you can just incorporate it almost any day, and it'll hopefully it should be able to tell you something. Yeah. And hopefully, it's not a big cost for your athletes. And actually, I was going to mention too that I, I know of one paper that used submaximal tests to guide training, and I don't think they found a significant difference. Well, that's not to say there wouldn't be one if they would have increased the intervention. And I think there was a bigger magnitude of difference in performance for the group that was uh, using the uh, submax test to make decisions on when whether they should train hard or not. So again, like what how that would be over six months or a year, I don't know. But one of the things that you would notice in that training is that your potentially take you longer to get as many interval sessions in or something like that because you'd consistently be pushing back days to allow recovery so that could be potentially not great if you're on a timeline um for an event you know because you're reducing a number but then it gets into this conversation of well if if i can get less for more type of thing yeah you want to interview robbie catchell so robert do you know robbie catchell uh yeah yeah Yeah. he's he's the american that does the um for years, design Winton, the data scientist now, really good guy, worked for mm-hmm. in, uh, Sky when I was there. Yeah, yep. And we talked quite a lot about this, about because I think back then there was a big push about we need to monitor more. And Robbie's view was he's been there and done it, and but found through some of the data, he he felt that he could recognise when people were taking. So to to, to follow your line about mm-hmm. them doing less training, longer coffee stops, or even do like keyword search. Like if you get people to put in subjective comments into their into their training diaries, by which I think I'm a massive believer yes. in training diaries, by the way, and people reflecting um, on there and then doing like keyword searches for more negative sentiment around. So and then over time, you start to build up trends. So again, it's, a, it's a more of a, on appearance seems less scientific, but I think it's really quite intuitive because quite often people express themselves and sort of change their moods. And yes, you can get them to fill out really complex questionnaires, but practically get them to do it. They add in a couple of sentences into their post session about how they felt. And, you know, and he felt, you know, the more yeah. swear words were in there or the, you know, just the more negative sentiment along with, you know, gaps in their training, you know, um, or longer rest and things were, you know, even though, he, again, it, it's not scientifically, it would never pass any scientific rigor. But again, I think we're all in the field of yeah. applying science, not doing science, and trying to understand like what's going on and using what tools are available. You'd probably find a qualitative researcher that would say you could get all kinds of stuff out of the swear words, but yeah, I <laughs> there, there, there yeah. you could potentially evaluate yeah. it. Um, I actually started designing some research uh, within my PhD that was looking at Australians athletes as they were traveling and that just became a big question like you know the stuff that I've talked about on the podcast was around their thermal regulation but it's just a massive question that you have to take out all the other variables of the the sleep the changes in sleep the, the chances of sickness the um, the jet lag you know the amount of walking they might be doing that's extra because they're moving or something like that. Um, and so a lot of that 
we you know, I tried to uh, capture in questionnaires. But yeah, that's when you get into that kind of stuff, it just becomes a really tricky question to answer. And, and then your questionnaires, man, like a rescue, something like 50 to 80 questions on that. You're going to have an athlete do that every day. I'm sure, I'm sure there's yeah. great data that you can get out of that. In the, or Dal, is it Dal, Dalda? Yeah, yeah. I think that was about that. Yeah. I think yeah. I've already, I've, yeah, I mean, you get yeah. for a week and then they're like, yeah. oh, this is too hard, yeah. of course. So what, what, yeah, one thing that I think would just be, would be better is one even better than like a sessional RPE scales or something like that. It's just uh, an analog slider and, and uh, to capture that within yeah. like, I don't know, whatever online training log is just like this is good this is bad slide it somewhere in between don't you don't have to worry about numbers or anything yeah. like that just is it closer to here is it closer to here then and then the calculations are done yeah. in the background it just takes all of the whatever like heavy thought yeah. that would be put into that um but other than talking about lots of shop there um i guess i guess the uh, the the last thing is you know what's next for you what's on your agenda and yeah well i'm taking a break i think i'm I'm approaching this i I approach my career with you know base build taper i'm another bit you know i'm I'm at rest so i'm under a rest period and i think when you i think when you stop you you do reflect and I'm, i'm i'm reading and and I'm doing things which I haven't done for a while. I've been really quite busy in the last like ten years, and thinking, well, you know, I'm 51, 52 next year. Like, what do I want the next ten years to be like? Um, and um, and what do I what am I really passionate about? And what do I want to? So, so I like making a difference. I like helping people. Um, and then I think, well, what do I know? You know, should I stay in my comfort zone for going to learn something new? So I'm really generally in, in a bit of a and I feel great. I mean, it feels um, I've got a rush back. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, um, I'm networking around some consultancy and to get some projects. I like to do, a, mm-hmm. I like to do variable things. And I'm really passionate about coaching. So uh, I'd like to help other coaches kind of hit, you know, so they can hit yeah. their potential. And there's some work in the national system here, but that's more international as well. So I'll be sort of reaching out around. And that's all, I think, sport yeah. in general, not just cycling. And and so being like a coach of coaches or a mentor yeah. would um, really float my boat. And then also I do love coaching. So I have entertained the thought of, of, of starting my own sort of coaching performance or services um, at some point, but I'm not going to rush into it. Because I think when you do those sorts of things, you've got to give it, you know, well, I would give it 100%. So I don't want to rush into that. And in the interim, we're renovating our back garden. I'm looking at a whole bunch of sand here. So I'm sort of overseeing that. and. Uh, I've got a couple of projects. I'm, I, I love I love technology and uh, and how that can improve the experience. So I'm working with a company to um, around like a you know, like a cycling tech. So that's quite good. And then working with um, another business, which they've you know, got some they've got some challenges around there around around the business. So I sort of picked up a couple of kind of interesting little projects as well, which is which is great. So um, yeah, that's where I'm at at the moment. That's like full disclosure of where I'm at. I, th- so. I think I would. I would add in, you should probably definitely um, ride with me to get a pie sometime. <laughs> a what, sorry? The Australians, they, 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 they ride places to get a pie. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, a pie, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, as long as it's vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian, so as long as it's a vegetarian. Fair I'm, enough. So, uh, oh. Yeah. Thank you to Simon for coming onto the show and sharing his knowledge with us. It's important to always come back to the fundamentals of performance and listening to someone that has so much experience talk about what they find important is a very good reminder of what the fundamentals of performance are. And just to wrap up here, please help us by filling out that survey mentioned earlier on in the show. It really will help us make episodes that will help your performance or at a bare minimum, make those endurance rides a little more bearable. You can find the link to the survey in the show notes of this episode. Thanks.